This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Stephen Pesavento. And for as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. Mindsetters, welcome back. Super excited. Just finished up a phenomenal interview with Jim Bafuccio, who is an incredible investor. He's been through ups and downs, multiple recessions. And what I loved about today's interview, what I think you guys are really going to take away a lot from, is this whole idea of coming back from failure, coming back from going through a really tough time and being able to keep that mindset, being able to keep that belief alive that you've got this, you know, never attaching your identity to your success or failure, never getting wrapped up in who I am is connected to those things. And we just really get deep down into it. And Jim's got a lot of experience. He was a developer for many years and moved into the note space working in the mortgage front, and is just a phenomenal guy. And I think you guys are really going to take a lot away from this. And if you guys do, I encourage you to, if you haven't already, go drop us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us reach a lot more people. And if you're the kind of person who likes to help others and you found some value in this, I encourage you to share it with family and friends on your favorite social platform, or just send it via text or email. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode. All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I am excited. I have Jim Mafuccio in the studio. How are you doing today, Jim? Doing great, Steve. Good to see you. Well, Jim has enjoyed a long and successful career in real estate and has some battle scars to prove it. And today he's the founder and principal at the Aspen Fund, and he draws on his over 30 years of real estate experience in ways that haven't been discovered. And Jim has become an expert on mortgage notes, and he helps investors earn high yield every single month in this space. And I'm excited to dive into some of the mindsets, some of the things you've learned over the years of your time in this space, and so that we can try to avoid some of those same mistakes. You ready to get into things, Jim? Absolutely. Got a lot of good stuff there. (laughs) All right. Well, with all that good stuff, let's start way back at the very beginning looking earlier in your life, what events or influences from your childhood shaped who you are today? Well, I would say just uh, my upbringing. My dad was a, one of a large family that his dad had immigrated over from Italy. He was the only one of his siblings that went to college. He, got a, uh, he actually got an Ivy League degree courtesy of, of the Navy. He went through the ROTC program. And so he went and got educated and he became an engineer and kind of set the tone for myself and my two brothers. I'm, I'm one of three brothers, and we all went on to become engineers. And, you know, it was kind of the mindset back then that, you know, you got you to get the degree and get a good, safe job, and the world will always need engineers. And I think it was kind of a little bit of that probably post-depression, you know, fear of, of not making it. So, and I'm, and I'm thankful for that because engineering was a great start and a great background. So I worked for a large corporation from started in 1980. I had graduated college from LSU and go Tigers are going to win the national championship here this year. Ended up going to work for the largest corporation in the world, actually, as a project managing engineer, civil engineer. And I did that from 80 till the end of 85. So the most radical pivot point in my life, aside from just my upbringing, having good foundation and then a good college education, which trained me about all things project management, 
was really my spiritual life. And I had a, you know, had an encounter and I, I became a, uh, a follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm not going to go too into that because I know that's not what the show's about, but it's my life. And this is uh, what made the difference for me. So in 1985, I just suddenly was awakened to the entrepreneur inside of me. Let's just put it that way. And all of a sudden, I felt like, you know, I can, I can make decisions with my time better than a corporation can. And it just, it was like a light bulb just turned on inside of me. And, and uh, literally, I've been self-employed since February of 1986. So for, you know, almost 34 years, and it's all been in the real estate. Real estate's a huge, huge word, but I've been full-time in real estate. I have not gotten a paycheck from somebody else for you know, for that many years, for almost 34 years. And I've had some really, really good years and I've had some really crummy years. <laughs> so. Hey, that's that's how it goes in real estate from time to time. But it's pretty interesting to think that, you know, your father came over here, immigrated, and that he went the safe route. You decided to go the safe route, going the engineering route. But I, I'm sure that that plays into some of your success today. How has that kind of security mindset, that certainty, playing into what you've done and how have you tried to break out of that, that thought process so that you could kind of go forward in the entrepreneurship space? Yeah. Well, I guess the positive part that I got out of it was honestly learning a way of thinking, you know, as an engineer and uh, learning project management, you know, project management applies, you can apply that to your personal financial budget, you know, you can apply that to, you know, landscaping your own, your own home. So, so I learned a way of thinking, which I'm really thankful for. As far as the security element, I guess I always felt like I'm kind of a pragmatist and I kind of look at it like, you know, the more specialized a person gets when he's an employee, really that doesn't represent security to me. That represents, you know, specialization to the point where you could get, you could get outsized and now you're looking for a job in your specialty and it's not that easy to find all, all the time. So when you get into business for yourself and once you understand the basic mechanics of business, it's really finding a need and then meeting it, meeting that need, you know, providing a service or a product that meets that need. And once you understand the mechanics of that, to me, that represents security because I can reinvent myself. You know, I can go find something to do. I had to do that in 2010, basically 2011, because I found myself flat broke, coming out of bankruptcy, no investors available at that point in time because I'd lost a lot of money and uh, really started over from scratch at, at the age of 55. And, and again, I'd, I'd been through this a couple of times. So my security is the confidence that I can go out and find something that needs to be done and figure out a way to do it well and maybe do it better than a lot of the folks doing it. And you'll always get compensated for solving a problem. And there's always problems out there to be solved. So that, that becomes your mindset for security. You know, any product you look at, any service you look at, any piece of real estate you look at, somebody made that thing be there because there was a need that needed to be filled. And so literally the sky, and nowadays with all the online opportunities, I mean, anybody can, can uh, really can go into business if they'll, if they'll learn this mindset and gain this confidence and skill set. So. That is such a big idea. I encourage all of you listeners to hit rewind 30, 60 seconds and listen to that two or three times because to think that you can create your own confidence by being able to understand how you create value for other people in the world is such a big thing. So I want to kind of drill in on something. It's something that a lot of people don't talk about, but it's something I like to talk about on here. It's, it's that time of a, a failure that is so big. 
you just talked about in 2010 and 2011, so many people we've had on the podcast have lost 10, 20, 30, 50 million dollars. And it sucks. It yeah. sucks the life out of you, if, if nothing else. Talk to me about what was going through your head after you were in that process of being in bankruptcy and how did you, how did you climb your way out? Okay, well, first of all, I have to rewind back to my first major. I've had two major failures in, in my business life. And, and so the first one was actually back in the 1990s. And I was a, I was a small scale residential real estate developer in Southern California. Got hit by the the SNL crisis, the savings and loan crisis. Which, again, for maybe some of your young your younger uh, audience, the savings and loans and the thrifts were, you know, doing mortgages back then. And there was a mortgage related crisis that happened. This 2008 one wasn't the first one, folks. And as a small developer who was dependent upon private money to do my projects, so I had high interest debt accruing. But we had an awesome project. Me and a partner. We actually won a Gold Nugget Award for the design of this project, and uh, we did the old-fashioned Pasadena-style bungalows in Southern California, and we actually changed the, the city's development ordinance for this project. We had, we had ho- everything from land planners to architects to even Hollywood location scouts coming to our project to view it and to interview us because of the uniqueness of it. It was an awesome little project. The problem was you know, when this crisis, this financial crisis hit the large corporations that had, you know, your bread and butter stucco box housing, zero inspiration, they were able to slash the prices $30,000, $50,000. And basically, we, we got out, we got priced out of the market. People loved our homes, but, you know, I, I wasn't able to sell the last handful. So we lost the last half of that project to foreclosure. And that was the first painful deal. And I built things back up in the uh, early 2000s and really shifted my emphasis to affordable housing. The ironic thing is, is what was affordable in Southern California in 2004, five, and six suddenly became ridiculously overpriced in 2008, nine, and 10. And I mean, we, we literally, it's ridiculous the train wreck. Most people know what happened in 2008, but we had properties that you know, we were going to sell for $250,000, which at the time was a hundred grand below anything else in the area. And by the time all was said and done, some of these homes were selling in the low 100s at the courthouse steps. So once again, it was a debt driven crisis. I think that's what kind of spelled to me the, uh, the epiphany I had in 2010 was, you know, you got to get on the other side of this debt cycle you got to figure out a way to be the lender and not the borrower. (laughs) And so anyway, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit there, but, but those two failures, you know, I don't take failure real permanent or personal. I I look at it like, you know, when you go into a gym, the end result is you want to be, you want to get in good shape and you want to be a better human body. You want to be a better machine, so to speak. So the necessary pain to go through to get to that result is you put a couple more, discs on the end of the bar and you, you pump a heavier weight, you introduce greater resistance. So to me, life's problems, honestly, the upside to them is they make you stronger. It sounds cliche, but it really is true. And anybody that's been in business or even been in life, if you have the right mindset and attitude, you view things that way. Now, that's not to say that you don't look, you don't do a review and say, okay, what did I do that was stupid? You know, I mean, did I contribute to this problem? Part of the answer is always yes. There's always things you could have done differently if you go back in hindsight. But you never let that 
keep you from moving forward. You know, when you look at the, the game films after the game, you know, you got to look at the fumbles and the interceptions, and the mistakes, but not, not to beat yourself up with. You just figure out a better way to play the game the next time around. So there's always some of that. But I guess I've always had, and I think it is because of my family upbringing and because of my faith, I just believe things are supposed to work. They're supposed to work as designed, and we keep working at it until we get, until we get the functionality better. And so in my case, it was shifting. You know, I used my real estate experience, project management experience, and my, my confidence, and I just retooled in, in 2010 and 11 and said, you know, there's all of these broken mortgages out there now. You know, there's people that aren't paying their mortgages and banks, the institutions have no idea what to do with these things and they've got to get rid of them or else they get closed down by the regulators. And of course, a heck of a lot of them did. A lot of, a lot of banks got closed and taken over and, you know, sold to the highest bidder. And in the midst of all of that, there's a whole lot of paper, which is paper assets, that's mortgages that are pushed off at the sideline and, and even put in the trash can in some cases. And so we figured out a niche and we actually started purchasing defaulted second mortgages, junior liens, which people at the time told me I was insane, but I could sit down and explain to somebody that had real estate experience within five minutes why it made a lot of sense. And I hooked up with a partner in 2012 and we started Aspen Funds and he his job was to go out and raise the capital and mine was to go find the deals. And that was like I said, 2012, and here we are seven years later, and now we're a 17-employee company, and we're on our fourth and fifth mortgage fund, and I think we have uh, about $30 million in purchase price uh, in assets under management, representing probably, you know, half a billion dollars in, in receivables or, or debt that's owed, and so our basic model is to is to do workouts with these homeowners. We, we don't want to take people's homes. We just want to get them paying on, a, a, on an affordable payment and we end up forgiving a lot of debt, but it's a beautiful thing because we're buying it for pennies on the dollar. So we're, uh, we're making good money for our investors and we're, we're helping solve a problem that's out there. So you've made this shift. Your company is now buying distressed debt and you're, you're getting it paying again. But what was going through your head when you hit that bankruptcy? I mean, you're obviously at a low. It sounds like the big takeaway is that you knew that things happen for a reason that you're going to be able to move forward. But how would you recommend someone else if they're, they just lost a lot of money, they're at the kind of the lows of the low, how do they get up and keep going? Well, I would say, uh, first of all, it's always wise to get the counsel of others and, and be able to look at your life and your failure or your path and say, Am I doing the right thing here? Okay. Am I, it, I don't mean right morally necessarily. I mean, I'm going to assume you're doing the right thing morally, but I'm going to say, you know, is there something with the business model that I chose to get involved in that's flawed or is not a good match for me? There's always a good place to ask that. And then if the answer is yes, then you, then you go on a search. And I, I sort of did that. I mean, I decided, you know, being a developer in Southern California for a small guy, for a small business is not a smart move. And it took me twice to learn it because you're so subject to cycles that you have no, uh, there's no predictability. When you start a project there, it can take you two to three years minimum to get your approvals, even on a simple subdivision, a two lot split in some cases, where you have no idea what the market's going to look like by the time you have a finished product. So I came to the conclusion, this is a flawed model. So I moved from the West Coast to the Midwest 
and and then I started looking at the real estate in the Midwest, and it's a whole other world. It's very safe. It's very unexciting, but it's very stable. And the price of housing actually correlates to the economic utilization. It's if you look at basic housing. I mean, right today, still, you can get a mortgage on a property, and and uh, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance are still less than rent in a lot of markets. Well, that makes sense to me then to be involved in in the process there because you take away that that the ups and downs of the coastal markets. And hey, if you play your, get your timing right in the coastal markets, you can you can make a bundle. But if your timing's wrong, you can lose it all. And I, I did twice. So I figured I want to get into, you know, I was in my mid fifties in 2010. And I, I was, you know, again, I was, I started back with zero. I'm starting over from scratch. So I needed to get into something that wasn't speculative, that was going to be bread and butter. And I was willing to just start really small and just apply the, the skills that I'd gained, the knowledge that I gained. And again, I just believe the system's designed to work, you know, and, you know, my faith has been a huge part of that. You know, I've never doubted who I am. I've never allowed my identity to be wrapped up in whether I'm succeeding or whether I'm failing at any given time. And so, you know, I don't have a lot of that kind of baggage going on that takes a lot of people down. I'm never going to jump off of, out of a building, you know, because of a failure. So I'm always looking for the way, the way to make this thing better. And, and I think you just have to have that kind of a mindset to be self-employed to begin with. So I think that's I, so key. It's such a good reminder that we can't let our identity get tied up in what it is that we're doing because we're not, we are not what we're doing. We are who we are. And we've got to keep that at the top exactly. of mind. That's exactly right. And Steve, if I could add that, that goes for not only when we're in a failing season or a, let's just say a training season, we're putting on more weights on the, on the end of the bar. That also goes for when we're in a successful season. I, I just feel like, you know, don't get too full of yourself. I mean, be very, be very happy with who you are, but be very, I think gratitude and just being thankful is probably the antidote for all of this. So you can be thankful for, for the tests and trials that come along, but you can be super thankful for the successes that come along. But again, at the end of the day, I'm not who I am because I'm having success right now. I'm who I am because of my, my deeper identity. And that, and that doesn't change through the ups and downs. So. That is such a good reminder. So I have a really a big question for you because a lot of our listeners, a lot of people who are in real estate, we have this fear. You know, people have this fear about, about raising money, about borrowing money, about taking this risk, right? And so we're, we're going out and we're raising capital. We're doing these deals. We're building our business. How do you recommend that people go out and do that with confidence? And how did specifically, how did you come back after losing a lot of money in 2010 and 11 and build a business around raising capital once again, you know, knowing that you had that track record and not attaching yourself to that? I'd love to kind of hear how that went because obviously you're doing some pretty amazing things now, Jim. Right. Well, twofold answer to that. The first one is I got to give, I got to give credit to, uh, you know, I, I hooked up with my business partner in 2012. And at that point in time, I had proven this model. I had gone out to a handful of new friends that I had made in Kansas City when I moved there. And I showed them my business plan on a, you know, on, on an engineering pad, real simple. It showed them how the numbers were going to work. And uh, yeah, I had the confidence to talk to people and show them, hey, I know this is going to work and here's why. And went out and bought a handful of these loans and made crazy profits on them. And then, you know, when I met my partner in 2012, the short version was he said, hey, you know, this is amazing. I, I see how this is going to work. He goes, why don't you let me go raise capital for you? Because that's what I've had experience doing. 
and you go find the deals. And at first I was a little hesitant because it was, and here's, here's part of one of the answers. I was kind of a do-it-yourself guy. I, I was the guy that had to do it all. All my projects, I went and raised the money, assembled the land, got the approvals. The only thing I didn't do was the hands-on construction. It was all, always hiring contractors or partnering with a contractor. But I was kind of a one-man shop. And I had to let go of that. And it was the smartest thing I ever did is to actually let Bob go be the guy to raise the capital. And it's for the first time in life, like, wow, I can do the part that's actually the funnest for me, which is go find the deals and, and negotiate the deals. So that's one of the answers is like, be willing to let go of the aspects that maybe you're not that gifted at, or, or that's not your highest and best use. The second part of the answer is, there is hungry investment capital out there. There are trillions of dollars of investor investment capital that really don't know what to do, especially right now. There's no better time for raising money as an entrepreneur than right now because of some of the law changes and you literally have access and you have the opportunity to give access to people to your private placements and to your off the grid or off Wall Street investments, we call them alternatives, than you've ever had before through some of the crowdfunding and some of the other regulations that have changed recently. You literally can bring people into, into your game that would never have had access to your game before. So that and the fact that you know people are yield starved right now, the investment community, we have institutional investors that can't believe the kind of returns. It's almost like we ought to start lowering our returns because they walk away and say, no, that's impossible, there must be too much risk. And people just don't understand the real estate world, they don't understand the kind of returns that are available. So all we really have to do is educate them, let them know you know, who we are, you have to have a good operation. Obviously, you have to be able to prove and, you know, convince them that you earn their trust, that you can manage that their capital well. But, uh, you know, if you're in this game, you can figure that out. And, and again, then you partner up with somebody that, that raises money. There's, there's hungry money out there looking for, they're looking for you. They're looking for us. And we're letting them find us. So. And that's the key. You got to have that belief in yourself that, that you're valuable and that what you're offering to those people is valuable and that it's not, it's not an ask. It's an offer. Exactly. That boy, that that's so true, Steve. It's so absolutely true. When you realize that, you know, I mean, we both need each other, right? That the entrepreneur needs the investor and the investor needs the entrepreneur. But if you, if you could put that on a scale, like, you know, you know, you look at supply and demand, you look at, is it a buyer's market or is it a seller's market? It's really skewed in our favor right now. The investment community needs us right now quote, more than we need them. I mean, again, we need, we need each other, but there's way more investment dollars that are looking for the kind of opportunity that Aspen Funds can provide than opportunity that we have. I mean, I couldn't accommodate all the capital that's out there and that's looking for some, somebody like us. I mean, we're, we're trying to grow in a really measured way where we're never taking people's capital in just because it's available, even if they throw it at us and then go out and buy a lousy deal, you know, and that's what tanks a lot of businesses is not doing that balancing act properly. And you get greedy. You say, whoa, man, this guy wants to invest a million bucks with me to go do fix and flips in St. Louis. Well, are you going to take his million dollars and then go, you know, now you got to go buy 10 deals, you know, day one, you're going to, are you going to compromise your, your due diligence? Are you going to buy crappier deals than you would have if he said, Hey, let me start off with you. I'll put a hundred dollars in your account and go work with that. So, you know, that's part of the balancing act of being a good businessman. That's really sound advice. So with all of your experience, Jim, I'm curious, what are you thinking right now? Where are things at market-wise and how are you planning for the next 18 to 24 months 
you know, knowing that you've gone through a couple of these cycles, are you guys tightening up? Do you think it's going to last a little bit longer? I know this is totally just an opinion, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah. So we have, we have kind of a, a, a unique approach to this because our mortgage funds, we are not uh, focused on the, on the coastal. We're not focused on the high ups and high down markets. We're literally most of the mortgages. And, and by the way, we buy non-performing mortgages and then we do the workouts. And then we also have another side of our business where we're buying performing mortgages or re-performing mortgages. Now, these are typically people's bread and butter housing. Okay. So if the market, quote unquote, the market, which I hate even using the term because there's no one real estate market, but it's say in general, whatever area you're in, if, if values start to come down, if I'm the lender and my borrower is a fix and flipper, say I'm doing hard money loans for him. As soon as that fix and flipper, for the most part, sees that, wow, what I'm able to sell this property for has just gone down below what I think I can get out of the loan for. I'm not going to make a profit on this. They're going to hand you back the keys and say, hey, you know, nice try. We sure gave it a go, but uh, thanks for lending me the money, but here's your collateral. And, and so I end up with a, you know, I end up with a, having to foreclose and end up with a property. Well, our mortgage funds are based on, these are people's homes, okay? So even if their deal goes from being having $30,000 in equity to now they're $10,000 underwater, they're not looking at that. They're not looking at the Zillow curves and saying, hey, honey, let's turn the keys of our home back into our lender because, you know, we don't have any equity anymore. They have emotional equity. They, they li it's their home. They, their kids are going to school down the block. They're, you know, they know their neighbors. They don't want the stigma of foreclosure. So, you know, people don't leave their property because it's negative equity. And the only reason they really go into default in our world is a loss of income. And that happens to people. But, it, but even in, the, even in the, the worst of the worst times, you know, it's a very low percentage of people that are actually unemployed that were able to qualify for a mortgage in the first place. So there's always a way to ride that out. So I think we're pretty recession proof. We're pretty market correction proof because of the assets that we've chosen to, uh, to keep and to work. They're not highly speculative. They're not business to business. They're, it's home sweet home. So that's really kind of the, that's the foundation of our model. So. And for all the listeners out there, you can see that Jim has been through this before where he's dealt with the ups and downs and now he's found something that is really more secure, more stable, that no matter where the market goes, he feels like he's going to be secure there. And you have to decide for yourself, what kind of business are you going to build? Are you going to build one that's going to be fast, rapid growth with all of this risk that can come along with it? Or are you going to look for something that's going to be able to stand the test of time and only you can decide that? Right. So what I'm curious about is, Jim, how would you define success and what's success to you? Well, success to me is, is finding what your sweet spot is finding what you enjoy doing and can do well. And part of that is you just, you need to know yourself. You need to, you need to know your gut. Part of that is, is listening to feedback from people that you trust, you know, like, why are you doing that? That's not really who you are. That's not your profile. So if you find what you were made to do, let's put it this way. If you find what you're made to do and then just do it, just engage the process of doing it, you're going to find a level of fulfillment and a, a level of prosperity that's, that's going to be higher than if you didn't do that. And then, of course, the other aspect is, is balancing life. If you become all work and all, you know, no play, no relationship, you know, your family blows up, you know. So, again, to me, my compass is my spiritual walk and my spiritual life. I spend a lot of time 
working on the interior. I think if a person focuses on, on the internal aspects of their life, then that'll play out in, in the way they live out their exterior life, if you will. And so I know I have a very keen sense of when my life is getting out of balance, when I'm bumping up against, you know what, dude, back off a little bit. It starts manifesting even in your physical body. If you're, if you just become aware of yourself, you know, like, man, I'm carrying a lot of stress right now. Is this, you know, am I, am I sabotaging myself? So success is really, is finding a balance and walking in what you're called to walk in. That's probably it. Mm, God, that is so, that's just such smart, such, such smart, wise advice. The ability to have some self-awareness and what that can create for you is, is really unbelievable. So talk to me, why have you succeeded in an industry that where many others haven't or have failed or given up? Well, gosh, you know, why did I win the Heisman? You know, <laughs> you know there's a lot of really successful people in, in, our, in our business. I, I think in general, I, and I can't sit here and say I know the case studies of the people that, that have not made it or that have failed. We're in a very small niche, so most of the people I rub shoulders with if they're still in it today, they're, they're successful. You know, a lot of people got in in 2008 through 2011 when the opportunity was huge, just like flipping, just like originating mortgages or anything else. You have seasonal players and you have consistent, you know, long-term perennial players. And when it's a seasonal gig, you know, if you're a house flipper, there was a time in Kansas City, you could drive up and down the streets and every, you know, every 10th house was boarded up or, or you could tell it was vacant. And it was, it was flipper's paradise, you know, but part of this whole thing is knowing when, it, when to get in and when to get out. And again, knowing who you are, am I, am I in this thing as a seasonal player just to take advantage of the, of the cream on the top or, or are we going to stay in this industry? And honestly, we've just made the choice to stay in the industry. There's always a, there's always a defaulted mortgage market. So I think just sticking with it, but for somebody else, you know, the people that have gotten out, I don't consider that a failure. Maybe they're, maybe they're not, their profile is not to go start a company in three different locations and hire 17 people and have all of this overhead to manage. And maybe they just want to jump into an opportunity and jump back out. So it really depends on what you want to do. But most of the people that start something and don't finish it, that's the problem right there. They're not, mm. they're not persistent. They don't press through the trials that are going to come. Anything worth doing, when you put your stake in the ground and say, I'm going to do this, this is assuming that it's a good viable plan to begin with you are going to run up against opposition and resistance. A lot of that's going to be your own self. It's going to be your self-doubt and your fears. A lot of it's going to be, quote, friends and family that are going to be perfectly willing to pile on and come along and tell you all the reasons you can't do what you want to do as an entrepreneur. We all probably know that. And if you don't, it's not just theory. It really happens. And then you're going to run into, you know, you're going to run into the old, you know, circumstances. You know, well, not as many people said yes as they told me in the training we're going to. They told me I'd two out of every 10 people I talk to are going to say yes to my deal. Well, you know what? If it's only one out of every 10, that's 50, that's a, that's 50% worse than what you were told going in. Just stick with it. Just keep drilling until you got paid or this is assuming that you got a good business model. I mean, don't, don't get into something stupid. And then five years later, you're the, you see, you can go from being persistent in a good model into stubborn in a bad model. And you got to know when you cross you know, the line. Okay. You, you follow me on that. So persistence is a great thing. Mm-hmm. If you're actually, if you're actually working on something that's going to work, but stubbornness says, I'm going to keep trying to make this thing work when everybody around you is telling you, you know what, it's a dumb idea. It's not going to work. So there's a, there's a balancing act there, you know? 
finding that balance. What are some of the keystone habits, the things you do on a daily or weekly basis that kind of had led to some of your success? I pray a lot, (laughs) but uh, also, you know, a lot of communication, communication with our team. You know, again, it's real easy when you have a track record of success and recent success to get your eye off the ball and to think, uh, wow, it's just going to keep getting bigger and better. It's continually analyzing. It's establishing KPIs, you know, key, key indicators for your business, key performance indicators and being honest about them, you know, and saying, hey, how at risk are we right now to a, to a correction in the real estate markets? And so you make adjustments like, you know, maybe we don't want to have quite as much of a footprint on the West Coast in certain areas or even part of the East Coast. And so you make adjustments. You, you're continually reviewing and revising and staying in communication with your team and with other, other people in the industry, other experts, and never, never assume that yesterday's success is going to automatically move into tomorrow because you have to be continually, you know, walking in this thing with your eyes wide open. So. Hmm. Such, such good stuff. I, I love this. I really appreciate this, Jim. Well, we've made it to the growth rapid fire round where the questions are quick, but the answers don't need to be. So tell <laughs> me, what's a book that's impacted your life the most or one you're excited about right now? Okay. It's the Bible. I'm, I'm dead serious about that. I, I, I get most of my hands-on information through webinars, through contacts with people in my space that are ahead of me and through podcasts such as your own, Steve, because they're, they're real-time information. Sometimes you're reading a book that was start, actually written two years ago, and in our marketplace, things move too fast. So I focus on, on scripture for my internal life and then for my external application. I get a lot of real-time information such as from your podcast. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So from an inspiration standpoint, who are some of your mentors, but more specifically, how do you look at finding great mentors in your life and how would you recommend others do the same? I consider and name a, a whole bunch of individuals and it wouldn't mean anything to the, the people out there listening. I'll say the way to find them. That's probably the be- a better way to jump in. That's more helpful to your audience. You know, I go to a lot of conferences within my space and nowadays there's conferences for everything and there's webinars for everything. So you can literally find out who the experts are. You can listen to podcasts like this and find out, man, you know what? Something about that guy I resonate with. I'm going to chase that person down and I'm going to ask him if I can buy him coffee, buy him lunch, do a deal with him. Just don't be bashful and go find the people that are, just find people that do what you want to do. I always say, I'm looking for, I mean, I'm 63 years old, so, but I'm still saying this and I'm going to keep saying this. I'm looking for the people that I want to be like when I grow up. Mm-hmm. And then I want to, then I want to do business with them. I want to walk with them and learn from them and gain from their wisdom. I love that. Model the people that you want to be like. Yeah. So from a purpose perspective, finally, what drives you to live your best life every day? Well, again, I just, I want to be pleasing to my maker. If the instrument I'm created to be is a guitar, I want to be a, I want to be a good sounding guitar. I want to, I want to find my design and I want to live the best version of me that I possibly can. And so in business, that means, that means operating with excellence. It means operating with integrity. It means the golden rule, applying that to my business. If it's in relationship, I want to be winsome. You know, I want to be giving, I want to be loving. Really, honestly, just just continually wanting to be the best me. And believe me, there's we look at ourselves in the mirror, honestly, and we can say, yeah, you know, I did pretty darn good in that area today. And then other areas, it's like, you know, Jim, you were a jerk again. You know, you, you need to be a little bit sweeter with the people close to you in your life, you know. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an ongoing process. But that's really my why is at the end of the day, I want to 
I want to be the, the full package when I arrive and I stand before my maker. I want to say, here I am, you know, I did my best at being who you made me to be. And undoubtedly there'll be some, uh, I'll find out how, how far short I fall in some areas and, and then I'll find out, I'll get some attaboys for some other areas, but you know, that's what drives me, keeps me moving forward. I love that. I love that. So thank you so much. This was such a joy. Where can people find out more about you or get in touch? Well, for one, I think in your show notes, there's going to be a link, a custom link just for your audience, Steve, where they can, they can find us. But I'll also say you can, we have a website, aspenfunds.us and Aspen Funds is one word, A-S-P-E-N-F-U-N-D-S dot U-S. There's a place to contact us in there. And if you have questions and we'd be happy to talk with you, give you any direction. If you're interested in our funds, if you're an accredited investor, our investor relations department can talk to you, but obviously we're not here to sell that. Anything we can do to help you get started and help you get directed and tell you everything we know and share our mistakes and successes with you, we're happy to do that. So, I love that. Well, thank you so much for doing that for the audience today. And I look forward to the next time we get to hang out. All right. Thank you, Steve. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Head over to theinvestormindset.com to join the Insider Club, where we share tools and strategies from the top investors and entrepreneurs on how to take it to the next level. 